Our text this morning is Psalm 36. Psalm 36. We'll make three points. They're there on the last page. The outline is there on the last page of your bulletin. The wicked in verses 1 through 4. The Lord in verses 5 through 9. And the future in verses 10 through 12. First then, the wicked. The psalmist in verse 1, has a message from God, an oracle, he says, in his heart that he desires to proclaim, and it concerns the sinfulness of the wicked. And he then lists seven things which characterize the wicked. Seven, the number of perfection. Seven things gives us a complete and full picture of human evil. But he starts... He starts with the root of the matter, the basic issue, in the second half of verse 1. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The fear of God is not slavish, debilitating fear. But neither is it merely respect or a sort of mild awe. It could accurately be translated, and sometimes has been translated, as the dread of God. The dread of God. It's it's this interior disposition of reverence and trembling love before the majesty and the mystery of the being of the holy God. And it is, Scripture says, the very beginning, the root of wisdom. And where it is absent... Folly and disorder are sure to follow. And not only is this this absence of the dread or the fear of God, the root of human sin, the first thing, if you will, that we might say about it, it's also the capstone, the culminating fruit of human evil. In Romans uh, chapter 3, you might remember the Apostle Paul is setting forth human sin. He's setting forth the fact that all have fallen short of the glory of God. And he, he actually cites this verse from our text as his final witness. Here it's first, there it's last. In Romans 3, it's his summarizing argument for the universality of human guilt. For the need for the gospel. And so this text is not a portrait really of abnormally, you know, unusually evil people. It's a picture of all of us, you and I. Apart from regenerating and healing grace. So the flowing in this text from this absence of the fear of God before their eyes, before our fallen eyes is in verse 2 the fact that in their own eyes they flatter themselves. Notice the repetition of the word eyes. If there's no fear of God before our eyes, then in our own eyes we flatter ourselves. This is basic. To be in a disordered relation to God is to be in a disordered relation to yourself. This is the pattern. 
To dethrone God is to dehumanize man. For we are his creatures. We are made in his image. And we're called by our very nature into fellowship and communion with our good creator. So to misjudge God is to misread ourselves as creatures of his love. If we get God wrong, we will get man wrong. And so, the text says men flatter themselves too much. Too much to detect or or to hate their own sin. So what happens, there's this kind of profound self-deception that sets in about our own corruption, our own state. Because the fear or the dread of the Creator Lord, that tethers you to reality. When that's cut, you're unmoored. And so having averted our eyes from God, we avert our gaze from the depths of our own condition. We flatter, we, we protect, we coddle and flatter ourselves, unable to see, the text says, much less to hate our own sin. And the psalmist then lists five activities which flow from this alienated state. He speaks of evil and deceitful speech. The, the failure to, to fear God, to confess his name, to speak of him appropriately, that will disorder all our speech. They fail, he says, to act wisely or do good. They plot evil. They commit. Notice these words, they plot. They commit themselves to a course. So this is not simply human weakness he's talking about. This becomes an active project. Human wickedness is an active project. It's a strategy. It's a permanently settled course of affairs. And this evil, which is within us, which clings to us, and which is out there in our world, it poses a threat in the psalm to our and to the psalmist's well-being. And that brings us to the second point. And the second point really is the psalmist's quite magnificent response to the reality of human wickedness, the Lord himself. In Romans 3, the Apostle Paul says, where sin abounded, the grace of God did abound much more. And so it is here. The love, the character, the nature of God is going to abound in this text and overwhelm the evil the psalmist has just described. So he says in verse 5, Psalm 36, verse 5, Your love, Lord, reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the skies or clouds. Your righteousness is like the highest mountains. Your justice or judgments are like the great deep. We could, if time permitted, derive almost our whole doctrine of God from these four lines. But let's, let's just note a couple of things here. First, the love of God is basic and pervasive here. And the word for love here means covenant, loyal, 
faithful love. It's used in verse 5, it's used in verse 7, it's used again in verse 10. This love, the love that God is, is over all his works. And here, the very structures of creation, they point to it, they proclaim it, they manifest it. This love, then, is calling wicked human beings, covenant-breaking, disloyal, unfaithful creatures, back to the fear of God, back into the communion we've abandoned. That's what it does. Notice also, second here, notice the images here. They move in order from the highest elements to the lowest steps of creation. So it goes the heavens, the clouds, the high mountains, and then the depths of the sea. And so the point is that the whole cosmos is a temple, a sanctuary manifesting the glory of its creator. The Lord's love reaches to the heavens, his faithfulness to the clouds. It's insurmountable. It's infinitely high. It recedes into the infinite depth of his own loving being as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And his righteousness is like the highest mountains, impregnable and firm and majestic and immovable. And his judgments are like the great deep. Settled, unfathomable, unsearchable, beyond finding out, for no one has known his mind and no one has become his counselor. And so the cumulative picture here is one of the infinite, unmeasured and unmeasurable greatness of our God. It's kind of omnidimensional. Out of this omnidimensional mercy, the whole created order hangs on it. And so there's a great irony here, and it's this. It turns out that the fear, the dread of this God, the dread of this God, this is the spacious land of liberty, the land of human flourishing. It's the puny little world of the wicked. And those who've thrown off the fear of this God, that world is shrunken and cramped. This God, we learn this at the end of verse 6, preserves both people and animals, man and beast, the text says. Now, this might seem an odd or even an anticlimactic conclusion to this majestic description of God just given. But it most certainly is not. This, in fact, this preservation is an overlooked continuous wonder. It comes from the hand of God. He preserves people and animals. We are not self-originating beings. We are creatures. 
Moderns forget this 24 hours a day. Moderns tend to think that, that they are like a permanent feature of the landscape. We did not make ourselves. We do not have our lives from ourselves. We have them from the hands of another. And we do not sustain and maintain ourselves in life. We are sustained and preserved by another. Right now you're sitting here and there's 10 million involuntary things that you had nothing to do with that are keeping you alive. And they are not asking for your consent. You are not being preserved right now, this second, by your own wisdom, by your own effort, by your own skill, by your own nothing. You're a creature. You didn't make yourself. You don't preserve yourself. You don't have your life from yourself. It's astonishing the hubris with which moderns talk about themselves. These withering blades of grass. We are contingent beings. And that means we did not have to exist. For God was not lonely. He's not in any need before the creation. In him there's no lack. There's no defect. There's no unrealized potential. God is not growing. He's not bored. His glory... His infinitely replete, full, joyous life is not enhanced by your existence or mine. Nor the existence of 10,000 worlds. This is what we mean when we speak of the perfection or the infinite glory of God. Nothing is added to it from the human side. Yet... Yet, in his goodness, in his overflowing bounty, he creates. And so we, who did not and do not have to be, are. It's astounding. We are. These ridiculous looking creatures with this things sticking out of their shoulders and these two things protruding from the bottom of their waist waddling along on this blue-green black ball hanging in deep space. There we are. What a spectacle. We who did not and do not need to exist are. Being, existence itself is the root of all our wonder. Stuff is, and it shouldn't be. It has no reason to be. But we are perpetually scouring this wonder away, treating human beings as if they were like Mount Rushmore. And so we who should not be, especially we should not be after the sin described in verses 1 through 4, yet we remain. Our very continuation in existence is a mighty work of the love which reaches to the heavens. 
In him we live and move. We do not move ourselves. We are moved by the secret, ever-present work of the Spirit. And when the Spirit withdraws his breath, we collapse and die. In him we live. In him we move. In him we have our being. And this is true, the text says, not just of humans, but of all creatures, great and small, man and beast. They're all preserved by the Lord God. And this preservation is not, even, not just bare existence. It comes with God's bounty, with his providential blessing. He feeds the sparrow and he nourishes the beast of the field. He clothes the lilies. He makes his rain, Jesus tells us, fall on the just and the unjust. He pours out his good gifts on the sinful creatures he created and whom he preserves. And thus, as Cornelius Van Til has memorably said, men have to sit on God's lap to slap him in the face. His sustaining goodness is needed for them to even blaspheme his name. And in verse 7, the psalmist moves to discuss not creatures in general, but you, the people of God. He says, how priceless or precious is your unfailing love, O God. This love is incomparable, meaning you can't compare it. To attempt to measure the love of God is futile. To compare it, even as the first or chief thing in a sequence of other things, is to denigrate it. That's what incomparable means. There's nothing to compare. It's price, it's beyond valuation. And this love draws us, the text says, it draws us to take refuge under the shadow of his wings. The Lord nurtures and protects his treasured people. So it turns out that this immense, immense, unmeasurable glory, the God of verses 5 and 6, is warm and welcoming and hospitable. And those who take refuge in him, verse 8 says, we feast on the abundance of his house. Notice this, the psalm has moved here from the cosmic temple, the sanctuary which is the whole creation, right to here to the sanctuary of the house of God, to the place of worship, the place of corporate worship. This place where you are gathered is a microcosm of the world. The world that is, the world that is to come. This assembly, the publicly gathered temple of the Lord, is the intersection of heaven and earth. And this is a house, the text says, This is a house of abundance. Abundance. Notice that word. Because it's the house of the God of abundant, unconstrained life. God is not paltry with you here. He's lavish. This is a place of feasting. Or as the hymn puts it, here everlasting love displays the choicest the choicest of her stores. God feeds you 
with his life-giving word, he seats you. He serves you at his very table. What is public worship? It's a feast on the abundance of God's house, his residence. Here, the text says, we drink from the river of his delights. That's a marvelous phrase. We drink from the river of his delight. This is a picture of the water of the life-giving spirit, which flows from the depths of God's own being, which proceeds from the Father and the Son, which is now given by the glorified Jesus. If anyone is thirsty, he says, let him come to me and drink. And out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. This river is a river, notice notice the plural, a river of delights. God is a wonderful host. He delights to delight his people when he invites us over. And the word for delight here, it sounds like, and it hints at, The word for Eden. Eden had rivers which flowed out of it. And the new Jerusalem has this crystal clear river flowing from the throne. And here, here in this house, in the new temple, that water, that river, which will eventually restore and renew and glorify the whole creation, it's given to you to drink in advance. And so, among other things, the liturgy is about participating in and declaring and enacting the recreation of the world. In verse 9, we see the hidden spring from which this feast, this river of delights, comes. It's one of the most memorable and rich verses in all of Scripture. For with you is the fountain of life in your light We see light. God himself is the fountain of life. Unlike us, in our frail and our contingent existence, he simply is. I am who I am. He lives. His being is existence itself. He lives from himself, he lives in himself, he lives as himself. Underived, unconditioned, unthreatened, unassailable life. And this life, the life that God is, is not static. He who is moved by no one, who moves all things, nevertheless moves in this dynamic, self-giving communion of his own ineffable life as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is why we can call him the fountain, the wellspring, the source from which all life springs. This is the difference between the Creator God and creatures, which is often obscured in our own murky existence. And he who is life, the text says, is also light. The end of verse 9 says, in your light, we see light. 
I love this phrase. Um, Even as we are not the source of our own life, so we are not the source of our own light. That is, of our own knowledge, of our own understanding, of our own perception. Moderns have this uh, notion that reason, like their own lives, is just a permanent feature of the landscape. But reason, human reason, is a creaturely thing. It's created. It's not some transcendent, detached thing by which you stand apart and objectively evaluate the universe. That's idolatry. Human reason is created. And it's fallen into darkness. And that darkness has to be overcome by God's reconciling light. Else our reason itself will be a source of confusion. Human perception does not see. And human intellect does not instruct itself. The psalmist, God says elsewhere in Psalm 94, the psalmist says God teaches man knowledge. It is only in his light that we see light. All things are perceived, they're seen, they're grasped, they're understood in the light of God's light, and that's a light beyond our ability to kindle. C.S. Lewis, he puts it like this, and these are words that are inscribed on his own memorial. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. That's what is meant by in your light, we see light. In the light of God's face, we who have damaged our minds by sin, who are darkened in mind, we begin to see things in the purity and the clarity and the truth and the joy of God's own light. God is for the restoration of reason. And the third point, and here I'll be brief, is the future. In verses 10 through 12, the psalmist prays for the, for the love and righteousness of God which shaped the creation he pr- and, and which we experience in this house. He prays that they would continue. He prays that God would maintain them. That the people of God would be protected against the threat of evil. You can see that in verse 10. Continue your love, your righteousness. And having invoked God, But it's important to know the God whom he's invoked, and that's the God of this text, the God we've been speaking of. Having invoked that God, he looks forward in verse 12, and he already sees the wicked as impotent and fallen. There's an important lesson, I think, in the proportions of this psalm. In the vision of God in the middle of the text, the, re- the reality and the threat of evil at the beginning of the text is shrunk down to size. And its futile end, then, is simply announced in verse 12. Verse 12 is almost anticlimactic. The psalm starts off with this long oracle about wickedness. At the end, the psalm says, there the wicked are, fallen. In between, there's the vision of this God. 
And this is an important lesson. Sin and evil are very real things. We must not minimize them. The struggle with them in our own lives is very real and can at times seem to overwhelm us. But they are not the first word at the beginning of all things. And they are most certainly not the decisive word that has appeared in the middle of history. And they are not the last word. Sin is a defeated interim phenomenon. It's a parasite. All sin and all evil are interim parasitical realities. God is the basic reality. You know what this means? This means an overemphasis, a kind of frantic obsession with sin, whether it be our sin or other people's sins or the sins of the nation, a kind of over-scrupulous introspection can be a sign of a profound lack of faith, a serious disorder in our vision because it obscures the grandeur of this God. This God alone can put sin and evil in perspective. And when they're put in perspective, they are not the first thing, they are not the decisive thing, and they are not the last thing. God is the first thing. He is the decisive thing. He is the last thing. Proportion matters. There are some people for whom God is small or abstract and sin is enormous. Their consciences are constantly wrapped up with their own performance and their own disciplines and their own this and their own that. But you can't wrench them out of that to the vision of this God who is life and light. Whose love infinitely exceeds all things. It's only in this, the light of this God that we have the hope and the strength to deal with evil. So this God, his love, his faithfulness, his righteousness, his justice are not now and never have been and never shall be threatened. He has no rivals. He has no competitors. He has already defeated evil. He has already wrought the reconciliation of all things. He has already ushered in the new creation. I don't care what anybody else says. This is the, the, the new creation has broken into this creation in Jesus Christ. And that means all ground, including the ground of our struggles and tears and sorrows, is already conquered ground. God is not locked in some kind of mortal combat. His life and his light have and they shall banish and swallow up death and darkness. The proportion matters. God should be enormous in your vision. And sin is real, but it's shrunk down. When the son of this God appeared, John tells us, and we read this in the gospel this morning, that in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus is the indestructible life and the luminous light that God is. And that light, John tells us, shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overpower it. You know why the darkness doesn't power it? 
Because in Christ, the fullness of deity, the deity of this text, dwells in bodily form. And thus the immensities of this text, the heavens, the clouds, the mighty mountains, the great deep, they are condensed and they are made visible in Jesus Christ. As Paul puts it in Ephesians 3, this was the New Testament lesson this morning, God sends his spirit, his life-giving river into our hearts that together we might grasp the width and the length and the height and the depth of the love of God in Christ. And, and God does this so that we might astonishingly be filled up to the measure of all the fullness of the radiant, life-giving God. Amen.